in Philippians by doing an introduction as well as looking at verses 1 and 2 last week. And today, as I told you last week, we'll begin in verse 3 and we'll go through verse 11 for our study today. And last, last week I pointed out as a whole there's a theme in the book of Philippians. And that theme is the unity for the progress of the gospel. Now within chapter 1, there's the idea of the priority of the gospel. Within that theme, Paul will address an even like sub-theme in each chapter as we go through the book of Philippians. So he gives us in chapter 1 the idea of a priority of the gospel. And by that I mean that the first priority of the church, of you and I, is the gospel. More specifically for us, the first priority of Redbud Baptist Church is the gospel. And today in verses 3 through 11, Paul is talking about this idea of partnership for the gospel. Specifically, Paul is giving thanks for the partnership, for the commitment of these Philippian Christians to the gospel. And then we see his prayer for the growth of those ministry partners. Doesn't it make sense that you're thankful for those who partner together with you in ministry? That at some point there you would pray for their continued growth in the ministry of the gospel? So today I want you to see that the priority of the church is that of being partners for the gospel. That is what we're here for. So the main idea of the text today is partnership for the gospel. I think I told you each week when we look at the text, there's a main idea within those verses that we'll see. So today, it's partnership in the gospel. Those of us who make up the body of Christ here, Red Blood Baptist Church, we're going to see that there's a partnership idea going on in the gospel here. First in verses 3 through 8, the pri- we see a priority here. There's two priorities. And let me back up here. If, if you're doing outline, let me help you out here, and I failed to do that. There's two points that's taking place here. Verses 3 through 8, and we see the priority here of putting the fellowship of the gospel at the center of your relationship with other believers. Now, I'm going to repeat that because I know you're going. That's a little bit long for me to get that. Putting the fellowship of the gospel at the center of your relationship with other believers. And then in verses 9 through 11, the second thing we'll see is the priority of putting the gospel at the center of your prayer life. So two priorities, putting the fellowship of the gospel at the center of your relationship with other believers, and then putting the gospel at the center of your prayer life. Let's pray and then we'll begin to look at these verses. Father, we thank you for... Again, allowing us to be here today, we're grateful for uh, the good news of the gospel that we've uh, prayed about today, that we've sung about, and God, we're here today as a demonstration of our worship toward you and appreciation of the gospel and what you've done for us in Christ Jesus, and so, God, we need your help today. We need your help to lead the people in the study of your word, but God, we need your help through the Holy Spirit to help our minds to think, to focus. And to understand the truths of Scripture today, that we might be obedient to them. And in response to the good news of the gospel, help us to go away today and take this text of Scripture and apply it to our lives and live out the gospel for before a watching world. So God, we need your grace today, and so we pray for it much. And help us in this time. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, look with us at verses 3 through 8. And once again, we see the priority here of putting the gospel at the center of your relationships with other believers. In verses 3 through 5, let me read those right quickly. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, 
For you all making my prayer with joy. Notice his reason. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In verses 3 through 5, Paul gives what I would say is a, a sincere expression of thanks to God for something in the lives of these Philippians. There are three aspects of his thanksgiving here to God for these Philippians. First, in verse 3, Paul makes the statement that every time, every time he thinks of the Philippians, he gives thanks to God for them. How many times does Paul give thanks to God for the Philippians? Every single time he prays. Now, quickly, let's think about that. Are there people in your life that every time you think of them, that you give thanks to God for them? Can I tell you there are people here today, as you look around this congregation, that you ought to be thankful to God for every time you think of them? Just take a look around this congregation. Look at the people next to you. When you pray, look around this room. Every time you pray, you'll be thankful to God for the people He's put in your life within the body of Christ at Red Blood Baptist Church. That's what Paul is doing here. For these, He's giving thanks to God every time He thinks of them. There are people here today who have sacrificed, who have given so that there is a place in this community to proclaim the gospel. Red Bud, as you well know, was established in 1823. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm, I'm, and I'm not saying that some of you were here in 1823. Okay? <laughs> but you have been here along the way to do something. To ensure that the gospel stays in this community and the gospel goes forward. Paul is giving thanks for those who over the years have brought him abundant blessing and joy. Every time he thanks of them, he thanks God for them. When he thinks about their participation with him in the work of the gospel, it leads him to thanksgiving toward God. When you look around this room and you look at the folks that you've come with week after week and you've shared life with and, and you've lived in community with, you ought to give thanks to God that he's given you these people to bring the gospel into this community. Give thanks for the people sitting around you who have sacrificed and labored and given over the years to make sure that the doors stay open and there's a gospel presence in this community. The Apostle Paul is modeling for us here an attitude of thanksgiving. For Paul, the blessing received from God leads to thanksgiving toward God. God has blessed you with these people sitting here today to come together for the sake of the gospel and it going forward into this community and to the ends of the world. We are to give thanks to God for the people sitting here around us. I want to ask you a question. Is that the way it is for you? Ask yourself that question. Does God's blessing you, especially gospel blessings, lead you to instantly and automatically to give thanksgiving to God? Or do we take for granted the people sitting in the pews with us today? Do we take for granted? Or, or are we thankful for them? Do we give thanks to God for them? Do we feel entitled to the gifts that God has given us? And consequently, we're not thankful people and we're not giving thanks to God. I want to encourage you again to scan the room today and look at people that you've sat here for years and years and years. Are you thankful to God for the people He's placed here to make sure the gospel keeps going forward? Are you thankful to God? Notice the second aspect of thanksgiving in verses 4 through 5. Always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. Notice 
that the partnership of the Philippians in the gospel fills Paul's prayer with thanksgiving. And that thanksgiving has what attached to it? Joy. He says he always prays with joy. The word partnership here is commonly translated into the word fellowship. What exactly does that word mean? If I mention the word fellowship, you automatically, your mind spins and you begin to think of things, right? If I say fellowship, we begin to think. Modern day, fellowship has come to mean something like warm, deep friendship with other believers. That would be pretty accurate in our, in our modern day. Well, in the first century, the word commonly had a business implication to it. Coming together in the business affair in order to make a commitment to get something done. Now, let me illustrate that for you. Say there are two brothers, Jim and Robert, and one day they buy a tractor and they start a farming business. Some of you will be able to relate to that. A partnership, okay? Both Jim and Robert sacrifice and they take their hard-earned money and they put it in this tractor in order to start a farming business. You know what? They're sharing a vision of beginning a business, all right? Christian fellowship then is self-sacrificing, conformity, to the gospel. There will be warm, deep friendships. Don't misunderstand me. But the heart of the matter is the common idea is that of what is utmost importance for us. A common idea that calls for our commitment, and the commitment is the gospel. That's what Paul is telling us here. We're partners together here for the gospel. And our priority is the gospel. Getting the good news that sinners are lost, separated from God. But Jesus Christ has come to this world to die to pay the penalty for their sins. That is our goal, is to get that good news out to people who have yet to hear it. That's good news, is it not? But it's only good news unless people hear the good news in time. People never get to hear the good news, then it's not good news for them. Look back at verses 4 and 5. When Paul gives thanks here with joy... Because of the Philippians' partnership in the gospel, the fellowship in the gospel, he actually, he's actually thanking God that these who are in Christ, notice what he says, from the first day, the moment they were saved until now, have done what? They've sacrificed and gotten involved in advancing the gospel. Listen, he says from the first day that these people come to know Christ until this very moment, they've done what? They've sacrificed, they've come together and made a commitment, they've partnered, they've fellowshiped together for one purpose. To get the gospel to the ends of the earth. These Philippian Christians have, what have they done? They sent money to Paul, did they not? Remember Epaphroditus, he took money to Paul so he could, he could live while he was in prison. This demonstrates that they had a what? They had a shared vision of the importance and the priority of the gospel. This is the great reason for giving thanks to God. Paul is in prison. Now what would most of us be doing if we were in prison for preaching the gospel? We'd probably be rolled up in the fetal position over in the corner. Licking our wounds. But what is Paul doing? He writes a letter to give thanks to people who have sacrificed so that the gospel can go forward. Look at verse 4. Notice as Paul gives thanks, his attitude. It's not just some rote, mechanical prayer. Always, in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. Paul says, every time I pray for you, how do I do that? I do it with joy. It shouldn't be a drudgery or a burden to pray for our fellow believers. It should bring joy to us to pray for them. What did the Philippian church have? Why did they have such a distinct effect on Paul? Look back at verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What is Paul saying? You have never given up 
on your commitment to the gospel. From the first day up to the present time, you've not wavered, you've, never, you've not backed up, but you've always been there. for the God. And Paul is grateful for those people. Again, look around this room. There are people here, again, who have sacrificed and given so the gospel will go forward. Do we pray every time we think of them with joy? Because if not for some of them continuing the gospel going forward, it's quite possible that you and I may have never heard the gospel, or you wouldn't have heard the gospel in this community and come to faith in Christ. Paul is saying it's especially the partnership, the fellowship, the shared life that he enjoys with these Philippians. The participation that he and these Philippians have in the work of the gospel that makes Paul joyful, that makes him thankful, makes him happy when he thinks of these people. This fellowship that Paul has with the Philippians is not based on having similar natural backgrounds, okay? Now, listen to me carefully and don't rush ahead of me in what I may say and misunderstand what I'm saying, okay? Those of you who are natives of this community have a lot of natural background similarities, right? Um, I've come to realize that if you're in a gathering anywhere in this community in a room with people, within a matter of minutes, you're going to discover that about 90% of them are related. All right? I've come to figure that out. Now, I'm, I'm doing okay on learning your names and your faces, but when you start the family tree, my head starts pounding. I, 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 can't, I can't get it all. And every day I'm learning. Oh, that's your brother. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know that, but now I know that. So it's not about natural background similarities. This is not the kind of fellowship that Paul is talking about experiencing with these Philippian believers. He's talking about a gospel fellowship. It's a fellowship of faith. They believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've experienced the grace and peace of God. They believe in the same Bible. They believe on the same gospel message. And that has done what? It has knit them together. Is that the kind of fellowship that we have here? You notice I said we. I've only been here three or four weeks. I'm in here with you. Is that the kind of fellowship we have here? Do we have a gospel fellowship Does the fact that we share in common the gospel, faith in Christ, God's saving grace, and the work of the gospel, is that what knits us together? You know, it was easy for Paul to think about the Philippians and thank God for them, but not only that, Paul characterizes his prayers with them as being joyful. The work of prayer that he engaged in on their behalf was sheer joy for him. I think there's some things we can learn from Paul here. One thing is that we ourselves ought to be thankful and joyful in our prayers for others. And second, do we make it easy for others to be thankful and joyful in their prayers for us? Do we make it easy or do we make it difficult for people? Are you the kind of person who makes it easier, easy for others to thank God for you and joyful for you in their prayer life? This should be a desire on the part of us individually and as a congregation. The idea that we would be the kind of people who would be so encouraging, so gospel-focused, so grace-filled, so mutually supportive that our brothers and sisters sitting in this room find it a joy to pray for us every time they think of us. Notice the third aspect of Thanksgiving that comes from Paul. In verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God. And then now notice in verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There are examples all through the New Testament of people who make professions of faith 
And it turns out that those professions of faith were not genuine, repenting, and trusting in Christ. People start by showing signs of of life in Christ, but they never produce any fruit in their lives to give evidence of being believed. We see that in the Bible. This is not the case with these Philippians. Paul is confident because God is persevering them in their faith. He's convinced that they will persevere in the faith. God who begins a good work finishes that work. So then again, the God who begins a work of salvation in someone's life will persevere that person in their faith. I was reading an article here a few weeks ago, and the article was entitled, The Largest Home for Sale in the United States. It Comes As Is. How many of you ever went to a car lot and you see the sign on there and it says, You buy it, you buy it as is? You know what that means, right? What you see is what you get. This home is 90,000 square feet. It's in Orlando, Florida. It has 23 bathrooms, 13 bedrooms, 10 kitchens, and 3 swimming pools. All of that for $75 million. As is. The catch is, is that it's not finished. The homeowner is a timeshare tycoon named David Siegel. He began construction on this home, and when the recession hit... His industry took a hit, so he couldn't finish the home. The home has a 20-car garage, a bowling alley, an indoor roller rink, a movie theater, a video arcade, a fitness center, and I can't figure this one out, a baseball field, and two tennis courts. But the mansion's interior has no carpet, no tile, and no interior walls. $75 million as is. You know, that's not the case with our God. The God who begins a good work... He always finishes that work. God will persevere you in your faith. If you've repented and put your faith in Christ and genuinely trust in Him, you cannot lose your salvation. God will persevere you to the end. You cannot fall away. That is a God who finishes the work that He begins. And Paul is thankful to God for that. Look at verse 7. Paul says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Why? Because I hold you in my heart. We live, in a, we live in a time when people have this attitude, don't get hurt, don't make commitments to people. Look again at verse 7. Notice what Paul says. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Paul is showing Christians here that we are to have emotion. You know, we like to give the impression sometimes that It's not good for us to show our emotions. This is not the case with Paul. He's clear. He's open about his feelings concerning these people, concerning these believers. What is the reason? Paul and the Philippian Christians were bound together by a common bond. Look back at verse 7. For you are all partakers with me of grace. The word partakers there in verse 7 has the same idea as the word partnership in verse 5. The idea is, again, that of fellowship, to participate with others in doing something. And that something is the gospel. The Christians here at Philippi have been right there with Paul all through the prison. When he was in need, what did they do? They gave to Paul. What he cares about, they care about. He wants to see the world come to know the gospel, to come to know Christ. And these Philippian believers want the same thing. So they commit, they partner with Paul to make sure the gospel keeps going forward. Notice in verse 7 again. He says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
The Christians here at Philippi, Paul says, have been partakers. They've been fellow workers with him while he was in prison. The idea is that they looked at Paul's imprisonment as if it were their very own. Now let me ask you something. Somebody you know goes to prison, you never think of that as being your own, right? I don't know part of that. But the Philippians looked at Paul being in prison as if they were very own. They were committed to Paul. Why was Paul in prison? For preaching the gospel. They were committed to Paul. They were committed to the gospel. They seen Paul being in prison as they, if they were there themselves. Paul mentions the Philippians having a part there, he says, in the defense and in the confirmation of the gospel. You Philippians have a part in confirming and defending the gospel. This has the idea that the Philippians stood with Paul because of the reason, as I said, he'd been put in prison. It also has the idea of standing with Paul as he continues to minister the gospel while he's in prison. Stop and think about this. Paul is in prison in Rome, and he's defending and he's confirming the gospel. And who is the emperor in Rome? Caesar. What an opportunity for Paul. Let me ask you, do you think it's an accident that Paul is in prison? God put him there so he could proclaim the gospel in the city of Rome where the emperor lives. And I'm going to point some things out to you over the next few weeks that you may have never seen in the book of Philippians when it comes to that. The grace of God has knit Paul's heart together with these folks. He loves them deeply, and they in turn love him deeply. What do we learn from this? What do we learn? Fellowship, unity in the same grace and in the same mission creates a band of brothers. In other words, love for the gospel and love for one another grow in the soil of God's grace and in gospel service. Mutual love for one another and a deep affection for one another in this room grows out of the soil of the common experience that we all know in God's grace and the common commitment to spreading the gospel. Now, there's this talk that goes around today about all these strategies for uniting the church. I meet with some pastors in the area along with the DOM once a week and... um, There's this talk about strategies for uniting churches in the area. Paul is saying the unity of the church is based on our common experience of and our embracing the saving grace of God that comes through Christ and the mission that grows out of that saving grace. Love and affection will grow in every congregation when the fundamental thing that holds them together is the gospel. We should learn from verses 3 through 7. We should learn that the fellowship with the gospel, the partnering together for the gospel, must be at the center of our relationships with other believers. What lies at the center of our purpose here at Red Bud Baptist Church is a passion for the gospel. What holds us together, what binds us together is one thing. That's the gospel. The good news that God has reconciled sinners to Himself through the death of His Son. That's the message we proclaim. That's what binds us together. So what does that look like? You might be thinking, okay, I hear that. What does that look like for me sitting in the pew with all these folks around me? What does that look like? Practically, here's how that looks for you. How about sharing with one another what you've been learning from the Word of God? Have you ever had someone walk up to you and say, I've I've been studying, and man, God has really showed me something in His Word. And you just can't wait to share that with someone. 
Those are ways that we can partner together in the gospel. What you learn and what I learn from the Word of God, that should be in our conversation, sharing those things with others. How about joining together in prayer for the advancement of the gospel? Have you ever prayed with someone in your prayer? You've prayed, God, bless Michael Seaman and his family when they go to Toronto. God, open the door so they can proclaim the gospel and people will be saved. Husbands and wives, families, if you get together and you read the Bible together and you pray, lead your children to understand that part of prayer time is praying that God will advance the gospel in this world and save sinners. How about encouraging one another to obey and mature in their faith? We don't necessarily like people encouraging us to be obedient to the Word of God. We like to think, well... I'll, you mind your business, I mind. But that's not that's not the focus we're to have in the gospel. When we fall into sin, when we, we're not progr- moving along as we should in our walk for God, we should come alongside one another and encourage one another. We're partners in the gospel, helping each other grow in their faith. How about bearing one another's burdens? How many of you have burdens? Yes. How about bearing one another's burdens? Am I, am, am I talking about this? You know, a lot of times we don't like that. We don't like to bear one of those burdens because we hear people's burdens and we're going, I don't have a solution to that problem, right? I don't have all the answers and and we're afraid to hear that, right? Because I won't have all the answers. You know what your answer is to people's struggles and trials and burdens in their life? It's the gospel. We live in a fallen, sinful, diseased, sin-sick world and we're all going to suffer. There's a reason why. It's because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Sin came into this world and all that stuff came with it. But there's good news that God, through the gospel, is redeeming sinners. And one day He will bring all this to culmination in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's a short story. But that's how we encourage one another in this world is through the gospel. How about growing in self-sacrificial love for one another? Can I tell you, that's the one thing I struggle with. More than anything else. I'm constantly repenting. God, help me not to be self-centered. Help me to think of other people more than myself. In other words, we put the gospel first. That will, that will result in us putting the fellowship of the gospel at the center of our relationships with other believers. Look with me in verses 9-11. through 11. And we see the priority of putting the gospel at the center of your prayer life. In verse 4, we saw the character of Paul's prayer. He prays with them for what? Joy and thanksgiving. Because of what? Because they've partnered together in the gospel. Now we see the we see a, the content of his prayer. We actually see here Paul praying for the Philippians to grow. He's praying for these folks who have partnered with him and God. He's given thanks, and now he's praying to God, saying, God, help them to grow. Help them to continue to grow in the gospel. Look at verse 9 and 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. Notice carefully that Paul's prayer reflects something here, and it's the priority of the gospel. We see three elements in Paul's prayer, and I'm going to walk you through these. First, he says that the love, that the love of the Philippians, notice what he's praying for, that their love may do what? Abound more and more. What does it mean when I say abound? To grow and go beyond what now exists. You may be asking, 
love for is it love for God? Is it love for one another? Is it love for uh, non Christians? I would say Paul doesn't restrict that love, so neither should we. If you're a Christian, a, a growing love for God should be reflected in a love for one another. And I would even say for non-Christians. You know, we can't say as believers, I love God and not love our fellow believers. That's contradictory to Scripture. You cannot say you love God and not love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul is praying that their love would do what? Grow more and more. As we continue to study in Philippians, we're going to see something. Paul's going to point out that in the church at Philippi, there were some difficult people there. There will always be difficult situations and people in the church. And notice that second feature of Paul's prayer. Paul's not just being sentimental here. He prays that their love may abound more and more. Notice, with knowledge and all discernment. The kind of love that Paul has in mind is love that becomes more knowledge. He has in mind the knowledge of God. He wants the Philippians to enjoy insight into God's Word and to know how to live in God's Word. It's, listen, it's not just head knowledge, okay? It's not just memorizing Scripture or teaching Sunday school or earning a seminary degree. What Paul is talking about is an increase in our love for God and an increase in our love for others. How does this love for God and others grow? Look at verse 9 tells us that it comes to an increase in spiritual knowledge and discernment. How do we come to love God and others? How do we grow in knowledge and discernment. Paul is praying for this, is he not? Paul knows that these things come through divine revelation. Paul is saying, we pray to God for our brothers and sisters in Christ to abound more and more in love. And God will grant that prayer. He will do that in the life of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice the third aspect of Paul's prayer in verse 10 so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The word excellent has the idea of making a difference here to surpass what is normal. Paul is praying that the Philippians will not be satisfied with being so-so Christians. Can I tell you, we cannot be satisfied while we live in this fallen world with just being so-so, middle-of-the-road Christians. Paul is praying that these believers pursue what is best in the knowledge of God, what is best in their relationship with believers, what is best in obedience to God. What Paul is asking God for is that these believers become what is best. You see that the priority of the gospel being at the center of your prayer life, have you ever thought about praying for your fellow brothers and sisters in this room, praying what is best for them to grow to be more like Jesus? Uh, prior, prior to coming here, I, uh, you, you know, I served as a, an associate pastor of the church, and uh, I had a prayer list, and I prayed on a daily basis. And I'm just telling you how this can work in people's lives, praying the best for people for the purpose of the gospel. Um, I made a list, and every day I prayed for certain members within that church. And as I came here, I thought that's a good practice to keep up. So I went through the directory, and on Mondays I pray for these, and Tuesdays for these. And so I have all of you folks covered one day of the week and praying for you. But you know what I'm doing? I'm praying God's best for you. That you won't be satisfied with just being a so-so Christian, but you'll fall deeply in love with God and with the gospel. 
and you couldn't help but proclaim the gospel to your co-workers and your, and, your, and your lost family members and the people that live around you. That's what I pray for you. And that's what Paul is praying here. God, help my partners in the gospel to abound in their love for the gospel. Help them to love Jesus and love God more dearly. Look at verse 10 again. Notice the best for which he prays. And I pray for this for you as well. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The word pure here. Some of you have translations that use the word sincere. This is a very interesting word. It has the idea of being found pure when something is unfolded and it's examined by the sun's light. You take something and you unfold it and you examine it in the light of the sun. Paul is praying for the Philippians to be prepared. Notice what he says here. For the return of Jesus. That they will be opened and exposed to the Son when He returns one day to examine them and they'll be what? Found pure and blameless. The word blameless has the idea of not stumbling or causing other people to stumble. Learning God's Word helps us to see temptation. It helps us to see sin for what it is. And thus, it turns us away. But we also learn to live with love and concern for others that are weak. Listen, there may be a lot of you in here who are strong and mature in your faith. And when temptations come, because you have a close walk with God, you're able to turn, that, turn away from that temptation. By God's grace, you turn away from that. And don't fall into that sin. But be careful of your brothers and sisters in Christ who sometimes fall into sin, that you don't look down your nose at them. But yet you pray to God for Him to turn them away from that sin. And you come alongside them and walk with them and help them to put that sin to death in their life and turn back in obedience to God. Again, in verse 11, notice the excellence for which Paul prays is that believers would be what? Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul prays for a life that is right with God. That's what he's praying for these folks. These things are what Paul prays for the Philippians. If you'll notice, what are these things? They're all what? They're all focused on what? The gospel. This is a gospel prayer. A prayer that is offered for one reason. To advance the gospel. Remember, Paul has prayed giving thanks to God for all these people and their work and their partnership in the gospel. And then Paul says, hey, it would be a good idea to pray that they abound more and more and more. That's us here today. We give thanks to God for those sitting in this room who have made it possible for us to be here to proclaim the gospel. Guess what we do? We pray to God and say, God, grow us more. Grow us in our love for you and for the gospel and for Jesus. Grow us more and more. May we never be satisfied. When I look around the room, I'm going to pray for Mickey to abound more and more in the love of God. I'm going to pray for Rufus. God, help Rufus to grow. Help him to abound more. and Help him to love Jesus so much he just can't stand it. Just God, help him to do that. And look lastly at verse 11. We see the ultimate purpose for these requests. And notice what they're for. To the glory and praise of God. The ultimate purpose for this prayer is to bring glory to who? To bring glory to God. It's nothing about the individuals. It's all about God getting glory. You're praying for your brothers and sisters to abound in love for the gospel. And when they do, guess who gets the glory for that? God gets all the glory. Let me apply these for you, and then we'll be done. Verses 9 through what do we do with these? Or, let me ask you this. Here's how you apply it. It's just a question. Are such things characteristics of your prayers? 
When you pray, ask yourself this question. Are these elements that are found in my prayer life? When was the last time you prayed for the brothers and sisters in this congregation to abound in love more and more? When was the last time you prayed for them to abound in knowledge so that they might discern the best things and prove them out in their life? When's the last time you've done that? How about being filled with the fruit of righteousness all to the glory and praise of God? You know, myself included, we're all guilty of praying about personal matters, are we not? And listen, those are not wrong. God's Word tells us to do what? Cast our cares upon Him. Why? Because He what? Cares for us. But we need to ask ourselves, where's our gospel focus? I challenge you. Here's a challenge for you. Read through the letters of Paul and take careful note when Paul says, I pray, notice how he prays. Now listen, it's not wrong to pray for personal matters, but Paul never hardly ever makes a request for himself. But what is he doing? He's praying for his fellow believers to grow, to abound in the gospel. Put the gospel first. That means you put the priority of the gospel at the center of your prayer life. Now I'm not saying you don't pray for concerns, health concerns, people who have cancer, children who are in the hospital with pneumonia. Yes, you pray for those things. But the gospel should be the main focus. It should be at the center of our prayer lives. Here here it is. Are you gospel focused? Are you gospel focused in your relationship with other believers here today? Is the gospel at the center of your relationship with other believers? And is the gospel at the center of your prayer life? Those are questions we need to ask ourselves. Let's pray.